0: Welcome, I'm Sebastian Mafoud, and you're listening to WCAT Radio, the on-air wing of Enroute books and media, bringing you the dulcet sounds of Catholic wisdom.
1: Folks, to the Pat Flynn Show, this is your host, well, you know who I am by now, and it's time for Sunday School. So my guest on this episode is a very interesting person. He's a philosopher, he's a theologian, he is a Dominican and he was recommended to me by a couple of people, actually, because he does a lot of work with the Thomistic Institute. And the Thomistic Institute is an organization that puts on talks and dialogues all across the the country, um, in other countries as well, specifically on campuses. And so he's constantly addressing a lot of the common holdups that, that people have with religious belief these days, questions about the existence of God questions about whether there's some type of conflict between the religious worldview and the scientific worldview, questions about religious pluralism. You know, is it, is it right to say that all religions are true? Is it impolite to say or wrong to say that only one religion is true? You know, how do you think about these things? How do you, how do you get to the bottom of this? So the conversation I had with Father White was absolutely fascinating. It was very enriching to me, and I, I think that everybody well I enjoy this conversation to get something out of it. I also mentioned that he is the author of a, of a great book, one that was also recommended to me called The Light of Christ. It's an introduction to Catholicism and obviously I would recommend this to to everybody, uh even if you if you're Catholic especially, but even if you're not Catholic. I think it's I think it's very important to Make sure that you, even if you aren't Catholic, that you understand Catholic theology so, so we can dialogue. I read Protestant theologians all the time. Many of them, I think, are quite good of Christianity as well. Um, always a good exercise. If nothing else, it helps you to better understand and communicate with people who might not share the same convictions as you. So yes, anyway, his book is called The Light of Christ. It's It's one of my, for anybody who is like Ser- seriously interested in, in what do Catholics think and believe. It's a great, great starting point. It clears up a lot of myths. Um, it's just a wonderful exposition. But I'm going to be quiet now. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation very much. And, and oh, well, let me just say this, uh, and I apologize in advance. The audio quality is not great. He was calling in from Rome, but I think it was my fault with some connection issues. So it's it's not it's not the standard it it doesn't sound as good as this <laughs> so uh please bear with me i think the content more than makes up uh for for the whatever distortion or sketchiness we have it's still audible it just it's just a little echoey um so once we hit the the official tom cruise um so once we hit the the official tom cruise sounding intro here just be willing to adjust your your volume as necessary so that way it's not either too loud or too too soft. And again, I apologize for that, but I I think the conversation more than makes up for it. I think you're going to really enjoy it. So with no further ado, we're kicking the official intro and then my interview with Father Thomas Joseph White. Ready to become better than most people and most things? Welcome to the Pat Flynn Show. Best-selling author, entrepreneur, fitness expert, and philosopher, Pat Flynn, teaches you how to learn and become amazing at almost everything through the concept of generalism, acquiring and stacking skills that will help you dominate in business and life. Want to get in shape? Write a book? Be a better precog division officer? Or simply launch a successful business empire? Well, sit back, relax, relax. And listen, as Pat and his guests offer offer digestible and entertaining insights on how to learn the skills, tactics, and strategies you need to pursue your goals and achieve the life you've always wanted. Folks, welcome back to The Pat Flynn Show. I am joined today by Father Thomas Joseph White. Father White, thank you for taking the time to chat with me.
0: Thanks so much, Pat. It's great to be here. Happy to be on the show.
1: Yeah, so the first thing I want to do is I want to thank you for, um, for writing the book, The Light of Christ. Uh, that has quickly become my sort of primary recommendation now that I give to people who are interested in, in learning about Catholicism. And it's been a very enriching book to me. And, uh, I, I want to make sure we, we find some time at the end to, uh, to talk about that specifically. But I've gotten a lot out of it. I think it's, uh, I think it's really well done. It's, it's rigorous yet accessible at the same time. Um, so before we get into that, I, um, Let's just do some of the formalities. Um, some people may be familiar with you, other people perhaps not. Um, can you give us other people perhaps not? Um, can you give us a little bit of background, who you are, what you do, how you got to be doing it?
0: Sure, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Catholic priest, and as you said, I'm a member of the Dominican Order. The Dominican Order is a originally medieval order founded in the 13th century, and it's one of the religious orders in the Catholic Church particularly dedicated to intellectual work, to study philosophy and theology history, biblical studies, and they often work in universities, Dominicans do, and teach. Some of them are um, noteworthy preachers or communicators, and uh, I am recently assigned, I worked for 10 years in Washington, D.C., where I ran the Domestic Institute there, but I was recently reassigned to uh, to Rome, Italy, and I'm at the Angelicum, and that's the Dominican University here, and here I'm teaching theology and philosophy to people from all kinds of cultural backgrounds from all over the world most of whom are studying for the priesthood or some of whom are just lay people wanting to think about religious things. Jewish father, Protestant mother uh, grew up kind of agnostic and decided to eventually to become Catholic but I work a lot with people who are in that zone of seeking or um, questioning for all kinds of points of view so both in Washington and now in Rome, that's sort of the area I work in, which is to engage with questions people have, intellectual, philosophical, and and so forth, and to try and encounter them where they're at.
1: Yeah, so uh, I want to dive into your story a little bit more, because I think we may have some similarities. Uh, I'm a fairly recent convert to Catholicism myself. I was, I was very, uh, you know, for many years I would have considered myself an atheist, and I kind of... I was very procedural in my conversion, if that makes sense. I went kind of from atheism to agnosticism to agnosticism to a sort of vague spirituality. Then, you know, I considered the the, the historical questions of Jesus, got there, and then, well, then there's the sort of denominational questions, right? So it was very, very stepwise. Spirituality, then, you know, I considered the, the the historical questions of Jesus, got there, and then, well, then there's the sort of denominational questions, right? So it was very, very stepwise in that respect. But for you, um, because you have a sort of, uh, not sort of, you have an impressive academic pedigree, When it was when you were in college, correct, if I remember the story right? What was it that sort of began to nudge you towards either asking the, the deeper religious questions? Um, what was what was that conversion process like for you? Well, in my case, I was, you know, first of all, let me just say I work with a lot of different people.
0: And I, I, I think before I say anything about myself, I want to say there's a lot of people who are very honest agnostics, very honest and uh, upright, seeking atheists, very honest, you know, Muslims or also Protestants or Catholics. And I think it's really important that people have an intellectual vulnerability, that they're truth-seeking, um, that they are able to keep kind of working on questions perplexed about ultimate explanations. And I, I, what I guess Really, actually, it was reading Buddhism, Buddhist texts, that really started to raise the question for me whether there could be kind of an ultimate explanation of reality. Would it be an atheistic, materialist explanation? Would it be something impersonal but immaterial, as I kind of ag- gathered, was the case in certain strands of Buddhism and Hinduism, or was, you know, monotheism really a possibility? And the other thing I was kind of... Um, I guess, intuiting intuiting, or inching toward was the idea that maybe if there is an absolute principle like God or something spiritual, could you encounter it? Could you have some kind of more than intellectual experience of God? Um, and so those kind of questions were leading me towards reading uh, Catholic mystics and Catholic philosophy, um, and so it was in that process that I started to think more seriously about words reading uh, Catholic mystics and Catholic philosophy. Um, and so it was in that process that I started to think more seriously about the possibility of Christianity and uh, eventually converted to Catholicism my senior year at Brown University. And then I went on and studied, you know, Catholic theology at Oxford and got interested in um, more, you know, I guess you could say rigorous forms of debate. Uh, not debate like opposition, but debate like thinking through positions really seriously.
1: Yeah. So you, are you still doing work with the Thomistic Institute?
0: Well, I ran the Thomistic Institute in D.C. for 10 years, which puts on Catholic, philosophical, theological events on totally secular campuses in healthy engagement with contemporary secular, you know, ideas.
1: And uh, actually now I've been put in charge of a Thomistic Institute that's different at the Angelicum in Rome to try to do something similar in Europe. Ah, oh, very so, cool. yeah, so I'm going to pursue the
0: same kind of project in a different location.
1: So People, oh, very so, cool. yeah,
0: so I'm going to pursue the same kind of projects in a different
1: location. So the reason I bring that up is I think that's that's probably a, a good jumping off point. You know, you're, you're you're going, you're visiting these largely secular institutions. It sounds like you, maybe not always a positive response right away, but you're getting good response. People are very curious. They're coming to these talks. What are some of the more common or, or current questions, hold-ups, uh that, that you run into on campuses and, and how do you typically address those?
0: Well I think you see two fundamental confusions or amusements in contemporary elite university culture among students. One is a fundamental concern about the relationship between science and religion and whether effectively the modern the modern scientific, cosmological and biological picture of the world we have inherited from the sciences should lead us to conclude that Atheism is the most reasonable view, or is some kind of religious view of the world compatible with modern science? So the, the new atheists have pushed the line that once you're scientifically woke, you're scientifically enlightened, you're going to cease being religious. But a lot of students find that implausible, and they're trying to figure out if that's if that's too simplistic. But if it isn't true that science leads in, in inevitably to atheism and a materialism, Well, how then should one think about the possibility of science and modern religion? So that's one major issue. And often in a contemporary university, there's not a real um, deep answer given to that question. The second one is moral absolutes. I mean, on the one hand, all the allergies exist against moral absolutes on campuses at the highest echelon because as soon as you make any moral claim, you're judging someone or you're excluding someone or you're Interrupting in someone else's safe space, but the other side is there's all these incredibly, uh, for example, at Berkeley, ferocious moral prohibitions about what you can say, what you can think, what you can do, what you can write, how you can speak, and so it's not clear to young people where the rules, the boundaries are, and the ones that are really thinking, it's even less clear to them. So, for example, at Berkeley, we gave a talk on uh, are there any moral ob- are there any objective moral norms. And, you know, argued that there are. It was very pedestrian, but it's basic. But, you know, and the student said, you know, we're just not really allowed to have this conversation in public. Hmm. Uh, it's, it's so wonderfully transgressive to be able to ask how you evaluate a moral action as a good action or a bad action. <laughs> so it's kind of very fundamental. But we use Thomas Aquinas to answer that particular question, and Aquinas is really powerful on, on that issue. But that's, I would say... The perplexity about science and religion issues and the perplexity about moral absolutes are two very deep perplexities in our culture. And if you can address
1: those intelligently from a religious viewpoint, people are naturally kind of open to the idea that religion has something to contribute. Uh, so if you don't mind, let's, let's go into that a little bit. So let's say that somebody has, which I've, I've seen it many times, some type of, of hold up, holdup. They imagine that there's some, maybe they can't even quite define it inherent contradiction between the scientific worldview and the religious worldview. How do you enter that conversation? How do you how do you begin to attempt a, a reconciliation there? There's a lot of things one can say, but I'll say a couple things briefly, both from a Thomas Aquinas, actually, who I just think is right on this. One thing we emphasize is that, you know, in a traditional
0: enlightened religious viewpoint that you find in, say, Thomas Aquinas in the Catholic classical theology and philosophy... Aquinas will distinguish between God as the primary cause of all things, who creates all things, not just at a certain point in time, but who gives existence to everything that is. But precisely because he creates everything that is, he also creates the things that are themselves proper causes. That's to say, you and I could be causing this conversation to happen, even as God is causing us to exist. So there's no fundamental rivalry between a secondary, so-called secondary cause, a created cause, which is a true cause, and God who sustains the causes and being. That means that you can have an immensely complicated scientific history of, you know, Big Bang cosmology 14 billion years ago, and the emergence of the conditions of life, and then the question of how life emerged, but it could be from purely from secondary causes without special creation on God's part, and then how life emerges and then it develops through a random, you know, partly by incorporating the random lines of causality of how things engage with each other. So that's, you know, that's a fundamental first thing is that God and the modern scientific Cosmological picture are not incompatible. A second thing is that um, God can work through what are, in, in some respect, in some respects, random events. If, if you understand random events to be embedded in larger structures of order, so you know, I am going to the store. You are going to the store. You are going to the store. Those are both ordered activities, but we meet each other at the store by chance. Yeah, it's actually really random, but the random engaged meeting the person at the store is embedded in a deeper order, and it's the same principle actually with DNA recombination it's you've got ordered procedures of biological reco- uh, you know um, biological processes in which there are random uh, alterations that occur and they can be felicitous. And then you get things like well can the modern sciences answer every question? Well obviously they can't for any person who's thinking a little bit they can't answer the question what justice is. That's a very fundamental human concern. You've never seen justice under a microscope. You can't see it through a telescope. There's no empirical quantitative measure of it. So just to take one important example, moral justice, which everyone's concerned about in our culture, um, you can't have a debate about what it is just based on the scientific method. Well, you also can't talk about existence based on shrubs, but they also can't resolve. So you just make some of these fundamental kind of distinctions, and then you talk about the compatibility of science and a religious worldview. Then you got to do the other the other stuff, which is about reading the Bible in a historical way, like Genesis, which gets you out of fundamentalism, interestingly, because the more traditional readings are not fundamentalist, and they allow you a more philosophical, profound reading of Scripture that makes room for modern science.
1: Well, you can tell you've definitely done this a lot, because you've, you sort of had, like, t- 10 to 15, like, common objections all kind of packed in there that you ran through, so... Um, I'm trying to figure out well, which one should we focus on. Well, we talked about before uh, before we started recording about the argument from contingency. And the reason I want to kind of dial in on that is, one, you said you've been working on it again recently. And two, this is one of the arguments that really first started to pique my interest, both in Aquinas and Leibniz, um, the, based off the principle of sufficient reason and so on and so forth. So I'd be curious, uh, how, how do you – this was a very powerful part of, of my process, and it really helps to deal with a lot of co- like common but – Let's be honest, stupid objections like flying spaghetti monsters and things like that. How do you begin to present this argument to people? Do you have a special development of it? Um, Yeah, take us through the the classic argument from contingency. I'm curious to see what you do with it.
0: Well, okay, the argument of contingency is a famous argument for the existence of God. It's articulated in different ways by different people. Thomas Aquinas has different versions of it. And one version is the famous third way and the famous five ways. But basically, I mean, the argument is not temporal. It's not an argument like, okay, it starts from the fact that things come into being and go out of being. And you would think, well, okay, so, all right, before, there's a fire right now happening down the street that that house. That fire didn't always exist. In fact, the house didn't always exist. The people who built the house didn't always exist. That piece of land didn't always that that house. That fire didn't always exist. In fact, the house didn't always exist. The people who built the house didn't always exist. That piece of land didn't always exist in the, in the shape it exists now. So things come into being and go out of being. And then you say, well, I know what he's going to argue. He's going to argue you have to go back in time, and eventually you get something there that's first, uh, like a big before the Big Bang or something. But that's not the argument. The argument is that everything we look at in the world, including ourselves, are things that come into being and go out of being. And they all depend upon, in long, you might know, call them systems, webs, chains, they, they depend on other things. You know, so like you and I only exist right now as beings that are contingent, that came into being and go out of being. Because we're dependent on the stars, on the sun, the sun heating the earth's surface, we're dependent upon oxygen, uh, we're dependent also on the food chain, uh, along farmers, uh, along a kind of cohort of conditions. Everything that we can find in that vast, always be, at any given time, a field of contingent things that all are explained only by reference to another. And here's where your famous principle-sufficient reason or principle-causality enters. If everything that exists now is the kind of thing that is contingent, comes into being, goes out of being, then it seems like you need to have something that, that, that doesn't do enough to explain how you get all those caused, dependent, secondary things. You need to move up something that's necessary. And that necessary thing is not contingent. And then Aquinas says, well, look, I mean, that's not actually very strong, not a very strong claim, because the necessary thing could be like undergirding matter and physical laws or something like that. The problem with that is those are aspects of the great chain of contingent things. So it seems like you need something necessary in strong sense that's not subject to material disillusion, that doesn't just come into being and go out and go out of being. And that's what we call God, Aquinas call says. And when he makes that argument, he doesn't mean yet like that you know God is personal, that you know that there's just one God, but that there is something immaterial that is not subject to coming into being and going out of being, that's in the foundations of all things. That's the kind of deep philosophical argument he's trying to make. And, you know, there are a lot of standard objections to it, but it's a pretty powerful argument. It's not it's not easy to get around and uh, it deserves respect.
1: Yeah. Well, that's that's what I found is, is, you know, I tried to study the best objections, which some of them I, I say I struggled with for a little bit. It seems like the best one is a sort of, well, the brute fact objection. Right. Well, why can't why can't the laws of the universe, just why can't it just stop there and then we'll just stop seeking e- explanations after that point? What's 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 the problem with that common objection? Well, I
0: think a brute fact objection, in fact, first of all, the facts change. And why do they change? Because things are contingent. The, law, the so-called laws of nature are well. It's nature well. It's objective. There are laws of nature. But there, those are actually our formalizations of patterns of behavior in the things themselves. So, for example, we talk about the laws of nature of Uh, pine trees, or the laws of nature of kangaroos, or the laws of nature of the human gallbladder. That is because those things exist. And so those laws, so to speak, they're not just like pre-existing in our mind and that's all there is. We abstract them, we think them out from studying the world around us. And The world around us is a world of contingent things. And so whether it's like the laws of atoms, the laws of chemical elements, or the laws of biological species, you're always referring back to contingent things. And those contingent things aren't caused by the laws of physics or the laws of biology in our mind. They're caused by one another. So if you want to explain why they really exist, you can't just say, the laws of nature. You've got to say, when we reflect on the laws of nature, we reflect on the things themselves that They're caused by one another. So if you want to explain why they really exist, you can't just say, the laws of nature. You've got to say, when we reflect on the laws of nature, we reflect on... The things themselves that exist in dependence upon one another. And they're all interdependent and they're all limited. And that they explain them sufficiently, it seems like you need something that is not simply itself subject to coming into being, going out of being, and being caused by another, but that is itself without cause and it doesn't come to be or go out of
1: being, which just is. And that's what we call God or Necessary Being. So then then the, the one other one that I think people really sort of want to press the objections on this one is they will they'll try to undermine the principle of sufficient reason itself. Well, why does everything need an explanation? Can't we just kind of get to a point and just say, oh well, yeah, there's just no explanation. What's the problem with well, that? Well, okay. the, the principle of sufficient reason depends how people articulate it. There are
0: versions of it. So the principle of sufficient reason is the idea that whenever you see an effect that bespeaks a cause, the effect in light of the cause. So, for example, if I come home and I notice I've been away all day, I live alone and I notice that, like, the furniture's all been turned over, my papers are all over the floor, my television is missing, I'm looking for a cause for it. Like, what's the sufficient reason for this? Well, the sufficient reason is somebody broke into my house, went through my stuff, and stole things that were valuable. And that's probably the causality. I can't prove it, but, I mean, I'm kind of sure, because I see the effects that show me sufficient evidence of the cause. And we use this kind of thinking all the time. Now, some people use it as a kind of a priori mental principle, like, um, I have a law in my mind. That law is everything has a cause. So I look at the world, and I see things that are caused, and I think there must be something causing them, and that must be God. And then the atheist says, oh, but everything has a cause, so God must have a cause, so there's no cause of God. It's so a cause of God, so there's no real God, etc. Okay. both in that case, both the atheist the clever ape, cause of God, it's a cause of God, so there's no real God, etc. Okay. Both in that case, both the atheists, the clever atheists, and the clever theists are working from this a priori mental principle. Like whenever you see something it has another cause. That's not the right application of principle mm-hmm. of sufficient reason. Principle of sufficient reason is realist in the sense I used before the break in. Mm-hmm. And you know, it just changed the apartment to the the world. And you're looking at the world and you're thinking, you know, stuff is happening through a field of contingent beings. None of them is itself a cause of itself. None of them can account fully for its own existence. Everything is coming into being and going out of being. There must be something who's causing it to be, and that would be the sufficient explanation. So it's meant to be a realistic way of thinking
1: about the world. So it, it wouldn't be obviously correct, and I think this is where you've got to be careful with language, to say that God caused himself, but it also it would be correct to say that we're not saying that God doesn't have an explanation either, right? Well, uh, Actually, it's Spinoza who says that God is causa sui in Latin. God causes himself, but actually, in the traditional
0: metaphysical philosophical tradition, like Augustine, Aquinas, they they actually forsit. They say no. I mean, if you wanted to have a first principle, you'd say. I mean, so God doesn't cause himself to be. I mean, God just is. Mm-hmm. And you know, the the the, the problem with the, we don't you don't see the answer before you seek. You have to seek and then try to find the answer. And when you look at the world. You see things are caused and then you have to raise the hypothetical question, could there be something where the, which is first? Where things just are explained in light of, cause things, things in the world need an explanation, it seems. Can we, can we ask questions of the world we experience in such a way that we arrive at the, the solution or the answer that they all come from God who's creating them, giving them existence? Well that, the, I mean I think it's possible to say we can, but if that's the case, then we just find what's first. Another way is another way if you want
1: to. Have- so, okay. So, arguments like these help us to get to the so-called God of the philosopher, a sort of sole ultimate reality, a, a necessary reality, right? Which
0: How- we don't know very well, philosophically speaking.
1: Yeah, yeah. So then you said, okay, it doesn't necessarily get us a personal God. It certainly doesn't get us the God per se of of, of Christianity or any particular religion. How do we start to bridge that gap? So we say, okay, all right, I'm. I'm I'm, I'm fairly convinced, I might even be compelled that there's, you know, of a general That's, monotheism.
0: Yeah, you bridge the gap in, by ignorance. Mm-hmm. Because what, what philosophical thinking about God does is, if it's realistic, it convinces you that God exists, but you don't actually have any direct experience of him. I mean, the world is caused, but who's God? Personally speaking. If God, and I think you can't argue that God must have some kind of personal character in sense of God is immaterial, God creates the world freely, but that doesn't mean we really know what person is, personhood is in God, some kind of personal character, in the sense of God is immaterial, God creates the world freely, but that doesn't mean we really know what person is, personhood is in God. So, I mean, we're, you know, seeking God intellectually or philosophically leaves you kind of poor. Um, and you can't just stop there. I've met people who believe in God and say, I don't want to pray to God because I'm afraid he'll speak to me. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid I'll come to know him. I don't want to have a personal relationship with God, as Christians talk about, because that seems very
1: frightening. Mm-hmm. That's not actually a crazy thing to say. I sort of, oh, of felt that way for a while. I'll be perfectly frank. I, I, it's not, I mean, it's not a crazy thing to say just because of like moral cowardice. It's also like, you look at religious superstition, you can say, well, there's so many crazy appeals to divine revelation or to spiritual experience or God's being to you
0: that it could be all pathology. Maybe there's no way to make, cut, cut a, a path through the field of religious pathologies. And of course we can point to plenty of bad side. Yeah, I understand all that. The, the problem is, if God is real, and I can personally encounter God, I can personally encounter God, it seems like a pretty important thing to want to try to do, and that I shouldn't allow the defects or the confusions of other people to thwart me from doing. You know, like, if I could personally encounter God, I probably should try to do that independently <laughs> of the, all the, you know, the religious pathologies that exist in the world. Yeah, because also atheism could be a kind of religious, a religious pathology, a non-religious, anti-religious pathology. I mean, I'm not saying it is. I mean, I, I tend to think it's a defect to be an atheist, intellectual defect. Mm-hmm. But, but the point is, I think an honest person has to say, look, there's a lot of ways you can go wrong here. Maybe the mistake is agnosticism, because agnosticism is paralysis. And we don't want to be paralyzed, we want to move. We need to move forward into God. Okay, so that creates a space rationally, this is to God. Okay, so that creates a space rationally where it doesn't sound entirely crazy to want to encounter God. And that's what we're talking about when we're talking about divine revelation. It's about God revealing himself to us and us coming to know God, uh, through God taking an initiative to come to us. Of course, Christians believe this has happened particularly in the person of Jesus Christ. And there are other... I mean, Jews believe it happens primarily through the Torah and the derivative prophecies. Christians believe that too, but they believe it's fulfilled finally in Christ. Muslims have a contrary in, uh, appeal to the Quran that is derivative in some ways to the Bible and in some ways opposed to the Bible. So that's very complicated. But, you know, the question in, in a way can be placed in a, in a Christian life by saying, is Christ a real person? Is he,
1: I mean, is Christ alive? Is he just a symbol of human religious experience? Or is Christ a reality? Can we inc- encounter him personally? Or is he simply a kind of a, you know, a pious myth? You know, this is where it can start to get, um, especially in today's culture, it can get a little contentious. Because there's sort of this, I would say, resurgence Uh, And I fell into this camp myself for for kind of many years as part of my procedure to becoming, I guess, what would you call it? A religious particularist. I was a religious pluralist. You know, well, well, why can't all religions be true in a way? You know, aren't they all kind of just pointing toward the same thing? Like, why do we why do we have to pick one or why should we settle on just one? Can't we just can't we all just say yes to everything? What's what's your response to that sort of position? Well, I mean, the Catholic Church, it, it's a kind of a clause. It's an absolutism, and it's also a kind of qualified pluralism. So, I mean, the Catholic position, which I hold, I hold as a matter of, of my own search for the truth, and also I think the Church speaks well here, uh, and I adhere to what the Church teaches. Um, human beings rarely go wrong in, an, in completely. I mean, there are
0: some really bad... Atheist philosophies that, like National Socialism, there's some really bad religious toxins, toxins out there, but in most major world religious traditions, you're gonna find some very profound truths, and you're gonna find some very beautiful and edifying practices. You may also find some, you know, errors or problems, okay? So you can then either become a relativist, who is a kind of, maybe a pluralist relativist, like there's different pathways up the mountain to God, Or you could also believe that because we're not fully satisfied by just a bunch of incompatible, partly incompatible pathways, maybe God in his mercy has given us a sort of definitive way to himself. And so the Christian claim is that Christ, as he says of himself in John, and so the Christian claim is that Christ, as he says of himself in John's gospel, is the way, the truth, and the life. In the sense that he brings clarity, vision, perspective to the whole. Christ teaches us sort of the uh, uh, a holistic view of truth that allows us to say the truth of the many religions and, and encounter them with respect. Uh, and, and also believe that the grace of Christ and the light of Christ could be at work sometimes in other religious traditions and in the seeking uh, and the devotion of their adherents, But that things come into focus more clearly in him. You know, this is like a kind of, you might call it heavily qualified pluralism or a somewhat qualified absolutism. Mm-hmm. Particularism, as you said. Christ is the particular truth of God in our world, but it casts a light that, that learn, teaches us to
1: appreciate rather than depreciate uh, other religious traditions. Uh, okay. and, I, I, and I think that's eminent, eminently reasonable. And, and teaches us to appreciate rather than depreciate uh, other religious traditions. Uh, okay. And I, I and I think that's eminent, eminently reasonable, and and there are, like you said, certain deep incompatibilities in some parts of some religions where it's either a or not a. Like one one of these can't be true, correct? So. That's absolutely the case. So uh, so it seems like it would certainly be reasonable to kind of try and, and refine, um, you know, our religious commitments, if you will. So I guess you know uh, what's. What, so we'll go back to my story because, you know, I could always try to revert to my experience and sort of what my process is like is, yeah, I I came to study Christ historically, probabilistically, personally. I became convinced of a mere Christianity, let's say. And I'll, I'll be perfectly frank. I had just about every prejudice you could imagine against Catholicism at the time and saved my wife. So we started out leading fairly heavily in the, in the Protestant direction of Christianity, let's say, as C.S. Lewis used to put it. What are the questions they should be thinking about? Um, you know, I don't want to say like directly why Catholicism, but I guess that's kind of what I'm getting at. <laughs> Just why Catholicism? Well, let me say first. Yeah, you know, I studied at Oxford, and I have a great admiration for C.S. Lewis, who I think is, from a Catholic point of view, a great fellow traveler. So,
0: Protestants or others who find him an inspiration, uh, I, 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 don't, I, you know, I think I think that he's a he's a a useful resource for many people uh, of many different confessional traditions. Um, You know, he he recounts in surprise by joy how he was a kind of hardened atheist, and he 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 knew another one who went out to kind of disprove the historicity of Christianity by studying the historical Jesus to try to prove that the historical resurrection could not have happened. And the guy came back like, you know, white, uh, pale in in the face and after four days of reading and said, you know, it it looks like it could have actually really happened. And as as Lewis said, he said, if that guy's atheistic
1: faith could be shaken, anybody's could, and that was to me extremely distressing because I wanted to believe in something that was absolutely sound. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, sometimes studying Christianity historically can be uh, destabilizing to people who take reason, historical reasons seriously. It, it, it certainly was to me. That was exactly that was exactly the right. case.
0: <laughs> it's a great passage in Surprised by Joy. Um, I, you know, I think I, I think with. Regards to someone like Lewis, or a Protestantism like that of Lewis, um, you run up against two two fundamental questions that the, I think the Catholic Church asks useful questions here. And someone like John Henry Newman, who's another Oxford person, is a, it embodies this in his own search as an Anglican and as he became a Catholic. One is the question of like, what is the visible center of, of Christianity historically? How do we understand ourselves if we're Christian? In relation of Christianity historically, how do we understand ourselves if we're Christian in relationship to all other worldwide Christians? Is it simply an individual experience? The truth can't be purely individual. If Christ is is real and there's truth in Christianity, then it's a shared truth. And then, how do we begin to think about the normative truth of Christianity? You say, well, solo Scripture. Man, the problem is Scripture is always read in a tradition. So that even if it's a fundamental wellspring and source, the truth. That truth is conducted, conveyed through generations of, of believers through argument, debate, clarification. And that's true even in Protestantism. You have a kind of magisterium or canon of, of truths. You know, so how do we how are we bound together in the truth visibly? And and that leads you to the sort of question of do we need an episcopacy? Do we need a tradition that clarifies the truth that we must all kind of um, adhere to if we're going to really find Christ? I mean, the real reason to have doctrines. Is to engage with God as God truly is, and to have a spiritual enough to have a Christianity without sacraments. You know, because we're animals, and animals live through engagements of the senses. Uh, we need signs. We need if you if you say you know you love someone or you're friends with someone, but you you never talk to them, they never see you, you never engage with them physically. There's no kind of expression through even a handshake or a warm smile or word. Well, it's a strange way to, to convey love. And that's because we're spiritual animals. So we convey love in and through gestures, through actions um, or inactions. And the sacraments are sort of this very traditional, primitive, early practice in Catholicism of the presence of the love of Christ through physical signs that speak to us as religious animals. Animals that need sensible consolations. And the heart of that is the Eucharist, the real presence, we believe, of the body and blood soul, and divinity of Christ. And so he's speaking of the question is, you know, is Christ himself speaking in John 6, and in other passages of scripture, is Paul speaking in 1 Corinthians, I think 15, it's part 11, where he talks about the Eucharist, I'm sorry, I forget the chapter offhand. Um, is he speaking about the real presence of Christ as something that could console us collectively as a church, when we engage with and Christ in a kind of Living bodily form, physical form, in the universe, and so that you know those are the places where I think someone like Lewis is open to a kind of Catholic evolution, mm-hmm. and of course he had many disciples um, who have become Catholic, including his literary uh, executive who still lives in, in Oxford and has become a, a very devout Catholic, and who thinks that Lewis would be Catholic today if he were still alive. But that's speculation. I mean, knew him, but um, you know. But I think I think it's important. You know, I, I do a lot of ecumenical dialogue. A lot of good Protestants will tell you, well, they're at least, who uh, at least every day thinks about why the Reformation happened and whether they should be a Reformed Christian or a Catholic Christian. Mm-hmm. And I think a good Catholic Christian is someone who is able to listen to the objections and concerns of the Protestant and think about their rationality and why they're Catholic, and not just because, you know, their Uncle Joseph and their my grandmother and all that gave him a good example. But, you know, b- because they actually believe in the truth and they're able to say why in in relationship to a, a good Protestant objection.
1: Yeah, well, that's a that's a very good response. And I'll say it was sort of a historical study that was fatal to my prejudice once again. So, you know, I, I have a lot of bias against Christianity in general. History sort of done me in. And then when I was trying to figure out, the you know, the Catholic-Protestant thing, I'd go back and I'd, I'd read, you know, letters from St. Clement, um, Irenaeus, Ignatius, and the Eucharist and the Mass as a sacrifice was sort of the hinge point for me, and it's yep. it was all there. And that was kind of like, was sort of the hinge point for me, and it's yep. it was all there. And that was kind of like, well, <laughs> well, well, that, shoot. <laughs> that was exactly the same for me, and when I read about John Henry Newman's conversion, it was exactly the same for him. And and he says this famous phrase, which can be misunderstood. But it is
0: slightly polemic, and he says to be deep in history is to cease to be Protestant. By which he means if you study the sort of profound historical wellsprings of Christianity, you see how Catholic they are. Mm-hmm. And he explores this idea in the book he wrote while he was trying to decide whether to become Catholic, uh, which is called The Development of Doctrine, an essay on the idea of development of doctrine. And that's a masterpiece yes, it is. of reflection on the historical origins of Christianity.
1: So um, I know we have a time limit here, but I have some some general questions that the people have sent in. Is it all right if we do sort of a rapid-fire Q&A here? Yeah, sure. Great. So um, first question comes from a recent convert for, for Father White. What advice recommendation would he, meaning you, give to someone converting knowing this person? What advice recommendation would he, meaning you, give to someone converting from another religion to Catholicism in regards to their existing relationship with God and how to and how to then develop their relationship with Christ so um, I knowing this person she's sort of coming from more of a general spiritual uh, yoga specifically Sikh background
0: well you know, to be honest with you, I often ask people themselves to help me with that who come from these backgrounds. So, I mean, for example, I mean, as a priest, what I would just say is if you begin to believe Jesus is real or if you're interested in the possibility that Jesus is real, pray to him. Pray the prayer of the agnostic. I realize this person is probably already converted, but I often say pray the prayer of the agnostic to Jesus. Ask him if you think he exists and do that for six months and you'll probably find out he's real. And I've told a lot of people that, and I haven't had too many people so far who haven't practiced that seriously, who haven't discovered Christ. It's sort of on his time, not our time, and that's part of the point. But eventually people discover Christ. Then as for the things that came before, like being a Sikh monotheist, for example, I mean, I think Christ preserves in us all that is good, and so he helps us see what we should keep over time and discern what we should keep and where we were confused.
1: And it's very valuable to have people who've gone through that practice themselves talk about what they believe as Catholic Christians to be true in the tradition they formerly inhabited, because they help us discern, as it were, the spirits to say, look, this is what the Sikhs absolutely have right, and you can keep this as a Christian, or this is what is like, you know, an interesting aspiration, but this actually probably cannot be assimilated. Um, and that's that's where people coming from these different backgrounds are helpful to us. So that's actually the next question here, is what aspects of yoga specifically would be in conflict with Catholicism?
0: You know, I have a convert here at the Angelicum writing a book on that.
1: Uh, so that's actually the next question here, is what aspects of yoga specifically would be in conflict with Catholicism? You know, I have a convert
0: here at the Angelicum writing a book on that. Uh, and he thinks there are a lot of theoretical conflicts between yoga and Catholicism. Um, and that they enter into the normative practice of yoga if you do it. This is a disputed question. So there's not a final word among Catholic theologians about that. It's a disputed question, but he's read about it, thought about it a lot more than me, Ezra Sullivan, so you should maybe have him on sometime. I'd love to. I think that uh, you do have to be careful. I mean, from a Christian point of view, you don't want to do anything that leads you to someone other than God as we understand him in Christ. But you do want to respect the potential truth in other traditions and the potential truth in their practices. And, you know, I just would have to be a real expert on, like, serious expert on yoga. And I mean, not as it's done in, like, on a mat, but I mean... <laughs> yeah, not like, as, like, a form of I, just physical exercise. Author, but, <laughs> I mean, I would really need to you know something about classical Hindu philosophy and yoga. And, you know, I just am not, I'm out of my depth to try to get into that. It would be
1: irresponsible. Sure. All right, next question might take us back down the moral road. Uh, this is an interesting one that came up in a conversation I was having the other day with somebody. Uh, was it wrong for Cain to kill Abel before God delivered the Ten Commandments?
0: Yes. <laughs> it's really clear that the editors of the Torah think so, because the, and the point the point is, it's very illustrative, that the Ten Commandments aren't just giving us uh, the natural law or moral, they're not just They're not just declaring the the natural law or the moral law to us for the first time as if we'd never hear it. it. They're confirming in a, they're confirming from the outside the inner workings and stirrings of the human conscience so that we can be strengthened and restore a deeper sense of our own best nature. So we are capable without the the Ten Commandments or divine revelation. So Cain should have known better in his own moral and religious sensibilities. That's the symbolism there. And so the the primitive history of humanity killing one another is already a history of error that could have been toward it, it, where we make mistakes we don't need to make or shouldn't make. Mm -hmm. And the Ten Commandments comes in as a gift to enlighten the human conscience, to strengthen an awareness of the moral law within us. But it doesn't come in something violent outside of us.
1: Mm-hmm. Very good. All right, next one is sort of an evangelization question. As a Catholic, I'm appalled, as I know many Catholics are over the years of abuse that's gone in the Church. That said, I know the Church is the body of Christ and not to be equated with any people who take advantage of positions of authority. But still, it's... Th- But still, the shame that's gone on in recent years has made it difficult for me to evangelize and share what I believe is the truth and beauty of the Catholic faith with people. And I'll admit, even times I feel somewhat too embarrassed to say that I'm Catholic. What advice do you have for people in my situation so it sounds like, you know, how do you evangelize? Right. And then,
0: like, I, understand. Listen, I understand it better.
1: How do you evangelize?
0: Right. And then, like, I, understand. And I understand it better as well as anybody because it is heartbreaking for priests because we, you know, spend your life trying to teach people the truth of Christ, the consolation sacraments, the truth of the doctrines of the Catholic faith. And because there is a small but, you know, nevertheless important percentage of people who have done terrible things and have not been disciplined sufficiently, it, it casts a pall upon all of us and upon the religion. And so it's, it's a call to purification of our way of proceeding, not just purification of, you know, people trying to prevent people from entering the priesthood who could be molesting people, but also of reacting in the right ways uh, to people who are predators and having the right kind of civic punishments and ecclesial censures or ecclesial punishments. And so it's a call to get the house in order. And, it, you know, I think the more we see about the, the procedures that existed prior to the Dallas Charter, the more we learn about like what has not yet put in place in some other countries. We'll see more. say this, it's absolutely commonplace throughout the culture. It's not a problem just in the Catholic Church. It's very much, I mean, I work a lot with sexual abuse survivors, most of whom are even often from non-Catholic backgrounds, or, or certainly I've not worked with people who've been abused by priests, who've just been abused, you know, in some other circumstance of life. It happens a lot in the family, it happens a lot in the schools. It happens in sports, and it happens in religious organizations. Um, So, you know, there has been a cultural shift where we, not just the Catholic Church, but, you know, lots of organizations are having to move, and many have have not yet moved, towards really turning people over to the law or being transparent about abuse. Um, So I welcome the fact that this purification is happening, but it's absolutely painful. I have also been surprised as a priest to see how many people continue to convert, know about this but actually are still looking for a fundamental orientation in life with regards to God. Mm -hmm. And so I go back to the thing I said earlier, which is um, your relationship with God should not be compromised. You you deserve not to have your relationship with God compromised by the bad example of some people in the priesthood or the Episcopacy. But that means that you need to seek God on God's terms, in the person of Christ, And the seven sacraments continue to be wellsprings of grace, even in the midst of a world where there are some priests who are bad priests or bad bishops. And the truths of the Catholic faith, including the moral teachings, continue to be true and ever more clearly true in light of the failings of many Catholics or many Christians or many human beings. You know, so we should take consolation in God, Christ, the teaching of the Church, and the reality of the grace present in the sacraments, and then you have to evangelize hoping that God's grace can penetrate people's minds and hearts despite the, the terrible, um, failures of Catholic priests. That also being said, just to say the last thing, I'm really for the, you know, the cleansing of the system and the, you can find great priests to work with. And I say that not in any self-defense, I'm, you know, limited, mediocre person, but I, I have been helped my whole life by priests. I have been helped by no one in, in my life like I've been helped by by priests. So I think that it's a deep, stabilizing feature of human civilization and of help to people. But we have to be
1: careful about the people who are predators, and we have to have a better internal system of self-government and discipline. That's very good. <laughs> okay, so the last one is, is from me, yes. Father White, and uh, it's, it's the one that I'm struggling with. Can, and this might be take far more time than we have left. Can you defeat Moldanism for me? <laughs> Um, well, first, maybe well, explain what the, what we're talking about. Uh, yeah. What the different Catholic perspectives are. It, I find yeah, you're, yep. you're referring to you're
0: referring to the idea. This is the classic argument about the relationship between grace and free will. And how is it that God can give grace to a person but permit them? Not? I find yeah, you're, yep. you're referring to you're referring to the idea. This is the classic argument about the relationship between grace and free will. And how is it that God can give grace to a person but permit them not to respond to it? Or Does he foreknow from all eternity what you're going to do when you refuse God's grace? And if he knows from all eternity, then um, does that mean you're really free, or is he in fact causing it? Is it a rigged system? Is everything predetermined? Um, Let me just say one or two very simple things. The classic answer to this question from St. Thomas Aquinas is that mysteriously human free will and God's, God's divine will are not opposed to one another. So it's not a zero sum game where if I'm acting freely, God has got to restrain Himself. If God's doing something on to me, then I, I'm li- losing my freedom. It's the contrary. God. As it goes back to the idea of primary secondary causality. God is sustaining us in being as free rational creatures, and He gives us the capacity. The contrary. God. As it goes back to the idea of primary secondary causality. God is sustaining us in being as free rational creatures, and He gives us the capacity to choose freely by creating us in his image. So we're really, you know, sustained in being by God as free, rational, spontaneous creatures. Um, the second thing is, when God's grace is present, it doesn't make us less free, it makes us more free. I become more myself with God's grace than uh, than without it. So it perfects and liberates the human person. It doesn't enslave or diminish the person. And the third thing I'd say is, uh, it's very important, however we explain it, that God, that we talk about the moral evil, whether it's natural evil, like we referred to Cain killing Abel, or the evil of rejecting grace, like turning away from the truth of God or something like that, something bad like that, this is never something God wills. He doesn't will it either directly or indirectly for some other, I don't know, super spiritual purpose. He respects our human nature and our human freedom. And when we do that, we diminish ourselves. We become less than we were meant to be. When I sin, I diminish myself. I become less than I'm meant to be. So it's not God causing me to sin that never happens. It's actually me turning away from being something more and turning toward being something less. I kind of unravel as a being every time I sin. And you know, God can save us from all that and support us, help us, forgive us. But he's not causing evil. And, and he is causing freedom, and he does want to make us freer and not enslaved. So I, I deal with this and some of the other things we talked about in the interview in the book that you mentioned at the beginning called The Light of Christ, An Introduction to Catholicism. That's from Catholic University of America Press, 2017. Uh, it's available and expensive. It's a kind of paperback for seekers, for people who are interested in Catholic theology, for Protestants who are interested in Catholic polemics,
1: uh, people who are just want to understand better what Catholicism is, and in uh, fact for seekers, for people who are interested in Catholic theology, for Protestants who are interested in Catholic polemics, uh, people who are just wanting to understand better what Catholicism is, and uh, it's available on Amazon, The Light of Christ, and so I'd recommend that. Yeah, and, and I can't recommend it enough. We just actually uh, gave it to my mother-in-law, who's had a, a ton of questions about the Trinity, and I, I really loved your section on the Trinity in there, just explained in a very s- simple, but again, not diluted diluted way. So, um, yeah, um, so... What made you want to write that book? If we can just finish with kind of that question, like what what caused you to rewrite? Because there's certainly other introductions to Catholicism out there, but I find yours particularly great. Um, What? Well, that's very kind of
0: you. I I I hope that could be true. Let me let me say that I wrote that book because I worked for ten years in Washington D.C. with a lot of very well-educated young adults thinking about often non-religious, but thinking about becoming Catholic and also Protestants interested in Catholicism. Uh, There was a sort of set of questions there, and I wrote the book to give uh, a a resource to people who are intelligent seekers but are not especially trained in philosophy and theology. So it's accessible, but it also deals with some of the key questions like science and religion, historical Jesus, controversial moral teachings, some of the stuff we've been talking about grace and free will, kind of classic controversies. And I wanted to write it at a level that wasn't too opaque uh, or, you know, too difficult but that was a little bit more than a um, um, a, cateche-
1: a catechetical book, mm-hmm. you know, something
0: a little bit richer theologically.
1: Yeah, so I will absolutely link that in the show notes to Amazon and, um, uh, again, encourage everybody who enjoyed this conversation to, to pick it up. Uh, it was very enriching to me, and I'm sure it will be to others as well. Uh, Father White, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join me today.
0: Hey, thanks for having me on the show. It's such a privilege. I'm really honored. Thanks very much. Yeah, hope
1: we can do it again soon. All right, you take care. You too. And flexible. Don't just be lean, be lean and muscular. This is what it means to maximize general physical preparedness, to be better than most people at most things. And that's what my premier program, Strong On, is all about. As a member of Strong On, you get access to not only my best classic kettlebell challenges, like the Extreme 21 Day Challenge, Kettlebell Super, Kettlebell Ultimate, Kettlebell Maximum. We also get access to a daily rotating generalist workout challenge using the power of high intensity kettlebell complexes, combos, circuits, and chains. So I invite you to head over to chroniclesofstrength.com backslash strong on. That's chroniclesofstrength.com backslash strong on and become a member today. When you join, you not only get access to all the challenges and workouts, but you get the awesome Strong On t-shirt and jug of protein as well. Chronicles of Strength Lawn. Check it out.
0: We hope you enjoyed the program and will join us back for another show on WCAT Radio. This is Sebastian Mahfoud. Good day.